From the Bob Varley Studio in Orlando, Florida, you're listening to The Diz Unplugged. Welcome to the Diz Unplug Roundtable Discussion for January 5th, 2010. From Orlando, Florida, I'm your host, Pete Werner, joined at the table this week by absolutely no one. That's right, I am sitting here by myself, practically in the dark, and I am alone. It's kind of weird, but uh, I will tell you why. We have four members of our team down with the flu. And I'm assuming this is a nationwide event or occurrence that everybody's getting sick. I keep reading about it on the boards. Um, it is definitely a problem here in Florida. Everybody's getting sick. I got Teresa sick, Kathy sick, Kevin's sick. Uh, Corey's just getting over it. Um, John is petrified that he's going to get, he's coming down with it. Uh, so I thought it best. Uh, oddly enough, I'm the one not sick. I'm fine. I'm have knock wood. Uh, but yeah, I'm the uh, I'm the one right now that seems to be uh, dodging this particular bullet. And I want to keep it that way. So I told everybody, you know, as much as I want to do a show with everybody, uh, it's best that they stay home and rest. And uh, but I also didn't want to start the new year off with no show. So I decided to do what I'm calling the sick show, um, a solo show that we can put up so that there's a show up and I'm not, uh, you know, trying not to do a throw together here. So trying to actually do a show that will be somewhat enjoyable. I know that some of you will enjoy me doing this. Some of you won't. I understand this is not ideal that you want the whole team and so do I. But uh, I thought this was a good compromise given the circumstances. So uh, we'll try and do this uh, whenever possible instead of not putting up a show. That was one of the things that bothered me last year. There were a number of weeks where shows didn't go up because of illness. It's unfortunate. But when you do a show like this and you've got everybody in the same room, uh, not you know phoning it in literally, uh, it's, it's, it's difficult. It's difficult because if somebody's sick, if one person is sick, you can get away with it. If I'm sick, then nobody can come in the house because this is recorded from my home. So, but uh, so I do have some things coming up. Um, going to do a little bit of housekeeping. Some things I want to make sure you guys know. There are also some pieces of information that are timely that I want to make sure we get out there. Uh, I have a rant for those of you who enjoy my rants. If you don't, I don't know what to tell you. Don't listen. Um, and we're also, I'm also going to talk about uh, the new Power of Ten, Give Kids the World $1 million fundraiser that we're a part of, uh, and really encourage everybody to help us out with that. We, we, we really need to do this. We need to show the power of this community. I'll get to that in a little bit. Um, we have some reviews that some of our listeners have sent in, so we're going to play some of those. Um, back in early December, Dave Parfit did an interview with Jeff Sherman and Greg Sherman, uh, the sons, respectively, of the Sherman brothers. And uh, so we're going to play that. Um, this is really weird. This is really weird sitting in the room here doing this. This is just bizarre. But um, something different, something different to start off the new year. So a couple things in housekeeping that I do want to get out to everyone. Podcast Cruise 3.0, you want to be on this. 
June 24th through the 29th, 2012, on the Disney Dream. It's a five-nighter. Uh, Podcast Cruise 2.0 in December, a smashing success. Over 600 Dizzers joined us on that cruise. We had a great, great time. Bob Gurr, Charlie Ridgway, Lee Cockrell, and of course, the incomparable Jody Benson, who just gave a performance unlike anything any of us expected. She blew us out of the water. They all did. They were all great. It was, a, it was amazing. And I got to tell you, I had a great time. Uh, I'm not going to talk about it because I want the whole team here to talk about Podcast Cruise 2.0. But uh, Podcast Cruise 3.0, June 24th through the 29th, 2012. You definitely, definitely want to join us for that. Um, and speaking of Lee Cockrell, I wanted to give out, uh, put out a plug for his new iPhone app based on his book, Creating Magic. You can have a link to that in the show notes page, podcast.wdwinfo.com. And uh, I'm actually, you know, it's a, it's a cute app, it, you know, lots of little, you know, lots of little slogans and sayings and reminders of, you know, ways to be better. And we can all use ways to be better. And I got to be honest, uh, the more time I spend with Lee Cockrell, the more, uh, the more I respect the man. He's got an amazing outlook on life. And the stuff that he learned working for Disney is really stuff that I don't, whether you are in business or not, it applies to everyone it applies to how we live our lives, and uh, it's definitely uh, some great stuff to strive towards. So we'll have links to that in the show notes page. Uh, Creating Magic is the name of the app. It's also the name of his book, which is available on the Kindle. It's available in the Amazon.com bookstore. It's available all over the place. Great, great, great book. Will help, like I said, it'll help anybody. Anybody in any aspect of your life, whether it's work or personal, it's a great book, an easy read, a, a good read. I, I can't recommend it highly enough, but I'll stop plugging it. And no, I don't get a, I don't get a kickback on the book sales or the app sales. So, just uh, we we love Lee. Lee's been a great friend to the show, and has been very generous with his uh, with his time. And uh, you know he's uh, he's a great guy. We love him. So uh, there's that. Now, a couple of things that are happening this week uh, that, have, that have happened this week that we want to make sure we let people know. If you are coming uh, into town and you are planning on visiting the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, uh, Universal is now requiring that you obtain a separate ticket with a scheduled time to visit. They're not charging for this ticket, at least not yet. Um, now, and I don't know that they're going to start, but... Believe me, if they think they can get away with it, they'll do it. But uh, this is for crowd control. I love how they wait till January to do crowd control, but uh, it's uh, this is what they appear to be doing. Kathy Worling reported this back to us, that she was over there uh, on New Year's Day. And uh, by 10 o'clock in the morning, all the tickets were given out. So if you're planning to go to Universal to visit the Wizarding World of Harry Potter, you want to be there extremely early. Get your ticket to get into the Wizarding World of Harry Potter. Hopefully, by managing the, uh, the crowds, they're going to provide a much better experience for people. And uh, so let's hope, I, I really hope that this works. It's overdue, but it's a good step. So get your tickets for Harry Potter. you got to get them in the park. We will uh, we'll do some more uh, some research and find out more details. But just if you're coming in the next week or so, uh, please know that this is a new thing that you have to do. You'll be very disappointed if you get there late 
and you find out you can't get into Wizarding World without a ticket, and you didn't get one. So, um, Also, uh, Leah Zanola reported to us that uh, there seems to have been a change with the Disney dining plan. Uh, they went to have breakfast this morning. Uh, normally, the dining plan allowed for two drinks at breakfast, and they were only allowed one. So apparently, there's some kind of change going on with the dining plan. Uh, of course, the Disney Dream uh, came into Port Canaveral uh, today when I'm recording this, January 4th. Uh, pics and a video are on the blog. Uh, Katie Whirling, Kathy's daughter, was out there covering it and uh, being really excited. And the ship looks great. I mean, I'm so excited about the dream. Uh, the christening cruise is coming up this month. We're actually we're, you, we're on the cruise for, we're on the dream for quite a while for the first 11 days that it's sailing. We're on it for nine of them. So we are, uh, we're very excited about that. Got a lot of coverage on the dream coming up this month. It is going to impact our show schedule, but we are going to get shows up. Uh, and our uh, a January 19th show will go up as scheduled. Uh, our January 26th show is going to be full coverage of the dream. We're going to be recording our show on board the ship. Uh, so it's not going to be the full team. It's going to be uh, Corey and John, Kevin, Walter, and I. Uh, talking about uh, our experiences on the dream. Uh, we are encouraging all of you, if you have questions that you would like us to research and answer about the dream, go ahead and send them in, podcast at wdwinfo.com. We are going to take some of those questions from both email and Facebook while we, we are on the ship, while we are recording the show. So we will put up a note so, uh, on the site and on Facebook uh, when we're going to be recording that show so that you can... Make sure you get our questions to us. But, of course, podcast at wdwinfo.com is the email address. If you have questions about the dream, do you want us to research and answer on our show for December tw- or December 26th? Okay. For January 26th, uh, please get those in as soon as possible because it's going to be a busy – it's a busy month for us. Uh, we got a lot coming up. It's – my travel schedule is insane. I don't know how many of you saw our post that – uh, going to be doing the Alaska cruise in May. We're also going to be doing the Mediterranean cruise in May. Again, uh, we're taking Teresa to the Mediterranean and going to be covering uh, the cruise through Teresa's perspective, which means we're going to find out about all the shiny things in in Italy. Her head's going to explode at the Vatican. Okay, for anybody who's ever been to the Vatican, you know we joke all the time about Teresa being distracted by shiny things and glittery things. She's going to walk into the Vatican. Her head is going to completely explode. I can't wait. I cannot wait to take video of that particular of that particular event. Uh, so we do. But uh, speaking of the dream, though, uh, we do have pictures and uh, video of the dream coming into Port Canaveral on the blog uh, disunplugged.com. dot uh, There's also a blog up there by Tom Bell about the wonder uh, moving to its new home port at the port of Los Angeles and. California, uh, the Wonder is going to be doing uh, Mexican Riviera itineraries part of the year. They're going to be doing Alaska itineraries part of the year. Very excited to do that Alaska cruise. Walter is out of his mind that we're doing an Alaska cruise. He's been wanting to do that for ages. So that's going to be that's going to be a lot of fun. All right, this is really tough, man. I'm I'm, I'm getting through my stuff here, and I've got I'm not even at 12 minutes into the show. So I have no idea how long this show is going to be, folks. So 
but it's different. It's just weird. It's weird because it's it's late at night and um, you know, hyped up on coffee and it's just it's weird. It's absolutely weird. But hey, what are you gonna do? Wanted to make sure I'm doing this for for you. You are wonderful listeners. I want to make sure you have a show. Oh God, boy, can I? I'm shoveling it big time here. All right. Um, couple of things. A couple of things I want to talk about. Uh, Walter and I spent New Year's Eve at uh, Fort Wilderness. Had a wonderful time. Uh, Got to tell you, you know, we love the fort. Really do. And I, I'm, I'm stunned at the number of people when I posted on Facebook that, I, you know, I was over at Fort Wilderness. Are you in a, are you in a tent? You know, my response to this is, are you new? I mean, what the hell? Of course I'm not in a tent. Anybody who's listened to this show once could figure out that of all the places I would be on New Year's Eve, a tent is not one of them. But, uh, no, we, you know, we stay in the cabins when we go over to Fort Wilderness. And, uh, of course, the price of the cabins was jacked up pretty good for, for New Year's Eve, which I understand and I was fine with. Wasn't there to cover it. Wasn't there to review it. But... I, I snapped. I, I have finally snapped, and, and this brings me to my, my rant for, for this week, and that is the coffee at Disney. Now, let me preface this by saying that, you know, coffee is, is, a, is an important part of my life. Um, I have my own coffee bar in the house. I can make coffee literally six different ways. Uh, I have the ability to make all sorts of lattes and coffee drinks, and I have flavor syrups. I have, you name it, I've got it. I can make just about any kind of coffee you would want me to make. And I have been, you know, this has just become a, a, a passion and a hobby. We all need them. And, uh, you know, it's better than, I don't know, wine. <clears throat> so I, uh, I'm, um, I guess I'm getting more snobbish when it comes to coffee and because this is really, I mean, as far as, I, I mean, I've always been snobby, snobbish about coffee, but the last few months, ever since, especially ever since I got my Tassimo and I never thought my single cup Tassimo coffee maker would make me more snobbish about coffee, but believe it or not, it has. It's wonderful. Can't recommend the Tassimo highly enough. Fantastic product. Fantastic. The Nabob coffee discs. <laughs> Killer cup of coffee. Really and truly. Great cup of coffee. But anyway, I digress. I've commented in the past about Cafe Valet. This is the coffee they put in the rooms with those tiny Dixie cup size coffee makers that they that they have. And I I, I just snapped. I, I and I'll tell you when it happened. Um I, I didn't, I just, I had, I was rushing to get out of the house to get down there on New Year's Eve. We had a lot going on. It was busy. And I, I didn't pack my French press and my coffee the way I had planned to. So I was like, okay, you know what? Let me make a pot of this. And just, I know it's bad, but you know, it really, it's got to be at least edible. Now that was absolutely given this coffee far too much credit. This is freeze-dried excrement that these people are putting in the rooms. The most vile cup of coffee I've ever put past my lips that my, my husband 
uh, drinks this stuff and likes it, I, I, I look at him like you are, there's something really wrong with you. You must've gotten dropped on your head as a kid that you can drink this and it's okay. But, you know, I knew it was bad and I knew it's in there, but for those of you uh, familiar with Fort Wilderness, you know that there are two, uh, two locations where you can buy food products. The cabins have uh, full kitchens and them, which is really nice. And I went into the, one of the stores and I noticed that they were selling because I was looking for like regular coffee, like ground coffee. I could make, make myself and they didn't have any, they had Maxwell house instant, which is one step up from the cafe valet as far as I'm concerned. But, uh, they had these Melita, uh, self-contained coffee in a filter type, uh, packets, very similar to the cafe valet. The cafe valet is like, you know, you just pull it out of the packet and put it in the, in the coffee maker and brew it. And this is the same thing. It was a dollar 45 for one of these. And it made a, a decent cup of coffee. Was it, you know, gourmet fabulous? No, of course not, but more than acceptable. I mean, I, I drank it, I drank it and I was okay drinking it. And I'm saying to myself, a dollar forty-five. Now, it, it, you don't need access to Disney's books to know that they've marked that up a ridiculous amount. For these hotel rooms, even peak season at All Stars, you're going to be paying a hundred and fifty plus a night for a room. And they put this cafe valet in there when they have access to much better product. Now, the, for New Year's Eve, I paid $450 that night for that cabin. I paid 320 I think it was, for New Year's Day. And then it was 195 for January 2nd. So let's just say at $195, which is actually a very good price for those cabins. Why can't you give me decent coffee? This was like... The, the shampoo, I don't know how many of you remember before the H2O products were in the room. It was that crappy, watered down, you needed a whole bottle of this stuff to get any lather shampoo that they put in the rooms. This Mickey, that Mickey Mouse shampoo that was awful, 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 awful. And we pointed it out on the show years ago. You're paying all this money for a room and you give me this crappy shampoo and I'm not saying that one is related to the other, but about six months after that, they moved to the H2O products in the rooms. And the H2O products are incredible. So now the coffee is, is, is glaring at me. Why, for what you're charging, really and truly, can you not pony up the 50 cents a room to put in a decent, decent packet of coffee? The Cafe Valet is offensive. It's offensively bad. And it just is, it, it, it absolutely drives me insane. It drives me insane. There's no reason for, the, for Disney coffee to be so bad. And I'm not the only one who feels this way. You see it all over our boards. Disney coffee sucks. We all know it sucks. But they're in this incestuous relationship with Nestle. 
Nestle. Now, my father, God rest his soul, worked for Nestle for 20 some odd years. And my father drank their coffee like it was going out of style. The coffee is crap. I know it's crap. I know how it's made. It's crap. It's crap, 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 crap. And they have access to better. And this is what they serve. This is what they, this is, they say to your, their guests when they come into these rooms, this is what we think of you. If you drink coffee, this is what we think of you. This is the value you're getting for the hundreds of dollars a night you're spending to be here. So my message to Disney for the new year, put some decent coffee in the rooms. Get a decent coffee maker. Stop with this nonsense. Enough already. Everybody knows your coffee sucks. Now, that's one rant. And here comes rant number two. The other thing I noticed at Fort Wilderness, and this has been, I've talked about it on the show before. I've gone off about it on the show before, but it's just, it angers me to no end. And this is the fact that all resort-specific merchandise has been eliminated. You go into a gift shop in any one of these resorts, you want to buy a, a, a shirt, a T-shirt, a coffee mug, something with that resort name and logo on it to remind you of that trip and you can't find it. All you can find is the same crap you see in every single store. There is no longer pleasure in shopping at Disney. There are no longer hidden treasures to be found. And this is part of, you know, Kevin turned that term, that uh, phrase, homogeniz- the homogenization of Disney. And they have taken it to a level that just is, is mind-bending. So I'm going to ask you guys listening and the people on our site to do the same thing that I just did. And that is send a letter, send an email, not to guest services, but to Tom Staggs, the guy in charge of Walt Disney Travel in, in uh, Burbank. And tell him this sucks. I want to have a memento of the resort I stayed at. I, I, when I go for things like this, you know, I, I, I go throughout the year and I, I, I review resorts. Some resorts aren't my favorite. I go stay there. I do it because I do it for my business. I do it for my, the show. But when I go and do, you know, Fort Wilderness, I go there because I like it. And I want to have a memento of that trip. I want to have something special. That's not the generic crap I can pick up at the World of Disney, at the Emporium, at Epcot, at any of the stores and any of the theme parks. It's the same T-shirts, the same coffee mugs, the same kitchen utensils. It's the same crap over and over and over again, no matter where you turn. It's the same crap. And the reason they do it is simple. The more they make of the same thing, the less they pay for it. And I get it. I get it. It's a business, blah, 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 blah. I think there are other places you can find to save a buck without absolutely eliminating some of the best parts, the most personal parts of the experience of staying at one of these resorts. It just bothers me. It bothers me when I see stuff like this because Disney is better than this. 
I, I, and those of us who have been been at this for a long time, who've been fans for a long time, who've been visiting the parks for a long time, we know. We can see it. We may not want to acknowledge it because we have this passion. We have this love for Disney, and we don't want anything to spoil that. It's one of the reason, reasons a lot of people don't listen to this show. And I've always known that, and I understand that, and I accept it. But it's the truth. And sometimes it's okay to be honest about the things we love, to make them better. We're not trying to tear them down. Far from it. We're trying to make them better. There's no reason, there's no reason we can't have a personal experience at these resorts. There's no reason that our experience has to be homogenized to within an inch of its life. Give us a damn t-shirt for God's sakes. Give us a damn coffee mug, a keychain, something, something with the resort logo on it, something that we can buy and say in 20 years, the way I have mugs from my first trips to Disney World. From the first resorts I stayed in, I still have coffee mugs and T-shirts that have lasted all that time. And I look and look back and I can remember the trip, the moment, the, the experience, the feelings, everything that happened on that trip when I bought that shirt. And I'm angry that Disney is taking that away from people. And I'm not the only one. Because when I bring it up in any one of these stores... The cast members all say the same thing. Please write a letter. Please say something. So many people are upset about this. If enough people say something, they'll change it. So you know what? Let's change it. Let's change it. There's enough of us. There's enough of us. Let's flood them. Let's flood this guy with emails. So I am putting on the show notes page, podcast.wdwinfo.com, Tom Stagg's email address. Send him an email. We want our damn T-shirts. We want our damn T-shirts. Enough is enough. Give us some resort merchandise back. Let us have our personal, our personal experience with these resorts. Let us have something to remember this by other than a Walt Disney World 2011 T-shirt. I don't want a Walt Disney World 2011 T-shirt. I want something from Fort Wilderness. I want something from the Poly. I want something from the Beach Club, the Yacht Club, the Boardwalk. I want something that captures that moment, that place, that time, that trip. Give me something to remember. Stop homogenizing my experience at the expense of a few extra dollars in your bottom line. I realize you're running a business, but part of your business is creating these fans and creating these memories. And I think it's just hysterical that their, 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 uh, their, their theme for 2011 is memories. <laughs> what they, you know... I don't know. It just, it, I, I don't know. The homogenization thing is just getting to me. The coffee thing is getting to me. And I figured I was doing a solo show. Whenever I do my rants, I scare the hell out of everybody in the room. So I figured better to do it while I'm sitting here alone. So those are my rants for this week. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the power of 10 to give kids the world $1 million challenge for those who listen to the show that we recorded on board The Wonder. Uh, we announced that we were starting this on January 1st. And basically what we are looking for is we are looking for 10,000 people who are willing to ask 10 friends to donate $10 to give kids the world. And if you can do that math quickly in your head, that would equal $1 million. Uh, 
now for those who are not familiar with Give Kids the World, um, when a child with a life-threatening illness makes a wish to wish-granting organizations like Make-A-Wish and other such organizations uh, to go to Disney World, these organizations reach out to Give Kids the World. Now, it's, this is a village that is located in Kissimmee, Florida, that is just completely built and designed around these kids and dedicated to these kids. And as the executive director, Pamela Landworth, said on the cruise, this is about a week of yeses for these kids. These are kids who always hear no uh, about the things they can't do uh, because of their, their limitations. And, and Give Kids the World is about a week of yeses, about forgetting about hospitals and doctors and treatment and medications and things like that. And just focusing on being being a kid and enjoying being in, in, in Disney World. And the amazing impact that this has on, on these kids that uh, in some cases there, there are just scores of parents who have said their children live longer than expected because of this. Uh, that they, and they credit Give Kids the World and this experience with that. Um, there are some parents who have written to Give Kids the World and said that the experience uh, gave their their children the strength to beat the illness that they had. Uh, certainly, that doesn't happen in every case, but uh, the point is that amazing things happen at this place, and it's uh, when I, when I tell you if you have not watched the clip of Pamela Landworth talking about what Give Kids the World does. You need to watch it. There is a link to it on the show notes page. We'll embed it on the show notes page so you can see it. <coughs> Three, two, one. Uh, it's also on the homepage of the Power of Ten website. That's powerof10.us, and 10 is one zero. So it's powerof10.us. And uh, there are a number of ways that you can help. Um, the easiest, quickest, best way is to send a text message. Uh, text message the word DIS, D-I-S-G-K-T-W, DIS, Give Kids the World, to 50555. That will automatically donate $10 to Give Kids the World. And that goes through MGIVE. And uh, that whole $10 goes right to Give Kids the World. Uh, we also have a page set up on firstgiving.com, which is a, a, a web-based fundraising tool. And uh, virtually all the money raised through First Giving goes to Give Kids the World. Um, First Giving takes a 5% processing fee to cover their expenses of, uh, of doing this. But uh, that's another way. Plus, you can also just send a check right to Give Kids the World. We'll have that address on the show notes page as well. And I have no delusions that we're going to do this in a couple of months. Uh, you know, people may think that because of the traffic that the show gets, that our site gets, that we'd get 10,000 people in a, in a flash. And quite frankly, given the volume of traffic that comes through our site, you know, I can understand why people would think that, but how many times have you seen a, you know, worthy organization advertise on television for help, you know, help us out, help us out, help us out. 
and it's just you know not didn't you weren't moved to to do it um but what is different about this is that we're reaching out to disney fans everybody listening to this show right now every single one of you knows the power of disney that's why you're listening to this show you're listening to this show to plan a trip to plan a trip for your family and why are you doing that well because a disney world is a place you love b you know you're going to have a great time and c it's going to create memories that will last a lifetime for you and your family for those of you who go to disney world frequently why do you keep going back something magical there something that has made your life better on some level i know it's certainly true for me uh, my you know my I've, I've told my story before i was homeless in the streets of new york when i was 21 years old and getting my life back together in the early days of getting my life back together, I visited Disney and it moved me. It, and I promised every year that I took care of myself and did what I was supposed to do, that I would reward myself with a trip to Disney World. And that kept me going for many years and eventually led to me starting this site and has changed my life, has changed my life. There is magic in this place. And I know it sounds trite and I know it sounds corny but it's true and the fact that this site my boards the show everything is populated with adults the vast majority of our audience are adults we know there's something special there and there's something we keep going back for and and can you imagine anything better to help share that magic that that experience with a child who needs it the most And if $10 is something you can't afford, which I understand for some people right now, the economy stinks. It's one of the reasons we're doing this. Give Kids the World is is hurting. The The first things companies stop doing when the economy gets bad is they stop their donations. And Give Kids the World thrives on corporate donations. It's one of the reasons we wanted to do something extraordinary. Raise a million dollars for these people to help do their work. So if you can't afford the $10, go out and find 10 friends who can and ask them to send a text message, go to firstgiving.org, send a check. Or maybe you have ideas for things you can do in your own community that will raise money. That happened when we did our last fundraiser, we raised $63,000 in January of 2009 for Give Kids the World. We started out selling T-shirts, and then people were doing bake sales and bike-a-thons and selling ice cream sodas in, in supermarkets. People came up with all these amazing ideas to help raise money. And we have uh, discussion boards set up on the Power of Ten website, blogs, articles, uh, things like that. We're going to be doing a lot of things on that site. Uh, throughout the year Uh, but I say we uh, you know we're starting it but it's a it's something that we're really hoping that the the whole Disney community all any website that wants to anybody that wants to help uh, this is not a Diz thing we're you know it was our idea and we're putting it together but uh, the power of 10 website has been set up to be a standalone website 
It's not linking back to the Diz. It's not linking back to Dreams. We're not use, it's not to be used for advertising or anything like that. The goal is simple. $1 million. I don't care who picks up this ball and runs it across the goal line. I really don't. The goal is to get that million dollars to give kids the world. However long it takes. I don't care if it takes five years to do it. We're going to do it. We're going to do it. And I need everyone's help. It's five seconds of your time right now to pick up your cell phone at the risk of sounding like a telethon to pick up your cell phone and text the word Diz GKTW to 50555. Since $10 right to give kids the world. And then ask 10 of your friends to do the same thing. If I can get 10,000 people to do that, we're going to make a huge difference. A huge difference for this great organization. And as one of the things Pamela pointed out, this is the most fiscally responsible charity in the United States right now. I think it was Worth Magazine rated them the most fiscally responsible charity. Of every dollar that's donated, only 6.5% goes to overhead and fundraising. The other 93.5 cents goes directly to the mission to support these kids. They turn no one away. 7,000 children a year go through this place and have amazing stories. And, and Pamela shares a couple of them in the video that we have linked from the show notes page. So um, I, I just want all of you who listen to the show regularly to brace yourself. I am going to talk about this every week. I'm going to talk about this at every event we do. You're going to hear a lot about this. It's important. It's important to us. It's important to give kids the world. And we may disagree on any number of things. But I think we can all agree on this, that helping send these kids and their families to this wonderful place to have that magical experience that we so often take for granted is something that that will make a huge difference in the lives of people who need it the most. So links on the show notes page, podcast.wdwinfo.com. And to those of you who have already donated, thank you. Please ask your friends. For those of you who haven't, I'm begging you, please, please pick up the phone, go to firstgiving.org, write out a check and mail it, whatever it is, whatever it is you think you can do to help. Every little bit counts. Every little bit counts. Okay, so we're going to move on. We have a couple of listener reviews that came in recently that I wanted to play for you. Uh, The first one comes from Natalie, who has a review of the Napa Rose at the Grand Californian at uh, Disneyland. So here is Natalie. Hi, podcast team. My name is Natalie Ayazi. I'm Disney Nat on the boards, and I'm just calling to give you our Napa Rose review. Um, we actually called 60 days in advance to make reservations, which is the farthest out you can call. And, um, we decided to reserve the chef's table. They told us we could either make reservations for 5.30 or 8.30. So we chose the 8.30 reservation. Well, about a week before we were supposed to leave for our Disneyland trip, we realized we made a huge mistake. We realized that we had booked reservations during Monday night football. Oh no, what do we do? So my husband Ryan called um, and they had no problem changing our reservations to the next night. So I think that it'd be easy to make reservations for this restaurant even just a week before. You probably don't have to call 60 days out. So when it came time for our reservation, 
We arrived five minutes early. We were seated right away by a very, very friendly hostess. Um, the restaurant was prob probably only about a third full, so I don't think that you'd probably have um, problems getting reservations here or even just walking up. Um, we were greeted right away by the sommelier, Rodney, and he explained to us two options for sitting at the chef's table. The first option is the vintner's table. This is when they give you a four-course preset menu. The other option is to basically let the chef choose whatever we want and just surprise us with what we're going to eat. And we decided that we would do the second option. So the executive chef came over and he asked us if we had any strong likes or dislikes. I, like Pete, hate seafood. So um, I told him that um, I do not want any seafood and I want small portions. And Ryan said, bring on the seafood and big portions, I'll eat with whatever. So um, he went back and the sommelier Rodney brought us out champagne um, while we were waiting. And then the sous chef brought us little pre-appetizers while we were waiting. Um, for Ryan, um, she gave him a shrimp meatball. And they gave me a crostini with prosciutto and pesto. Ryan absolutely loves his meatball. Um, he said it was really, really good. I obviously didn't try it because it was seafood. Um, but I can tell you that my crostini was awesome. It was really good. It was just a really small little bite. But it was so flavorful and so good. Um, then the sommelier prepared us for the first course by bringing us out more wine. Um, we both have white wines. Ryan was a Nora from Alberino, Spain, and Natalie's was a Brassfield Serenity from Napa. Um, then the sous chef brought us our first course. Ryan had Szechuan pepper seared ahi, and it was so good. He took one bite of it, and he just immediately took another little piece off and gave it to me. Um, Ryan knows I, I absolutely hate seafood. Um, I don't like things that look the same dead that they were as they were when they were alive, and I just I can't stand seafood. But if it's really really good seafood and it doesn't taste fishy, um, every once in a while Ryan will tell me to try it. And so I trusted him and I took a bite, and I'm so glad I did. This was really 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 good. Um, it was awesome. Um, and I had um, an heirloom tomato salad with blue cheese snow. I have to tell you, when I first got this, I was kind of disappointed. It was just basically a big tomato with a whole bunch of little tomatoes inside of it and some herbs on top of it. And I kind of was like, what the heck? I'm paying this huge amount to eat a tomato, but it was really, really good. I can't even describe it. Um, I asked the sous chef about it, and he said that um, this tomato, these tomatoes had never even been refrigerated. Um, they were just completely fresh and just so good. I ate all of it, and Ryan definitely ate all of his um, tuna. So then um, the executive chef came by to check on us, and um, we told him we were doing great. So um, then the sommelier brought us more white wine for our second course. Um, Ryan got a Belana Chardonnay from Edna Valley, and Natalie got a Riesling from Germany. And usually I'm not a huge white wine fan, but I did really enjoy this. Um, even after drinking my full glass of champagne and my first glass of white wine, I did actually drink all of this too, and Ryan loved his. He drank all of his too. Um, and then we were served our second course. Ryan had seared scallops with vanilla lobster, and he absolutely loved this. He said that the tuna was probably his favorite, but he really enjoyed this as well and ate all of it. Um, I got um, a duo of tarts. I had two tarts. 
one was um, a baked brie tart, and it had mushrooms on top of it, and I love anything with cheese and mushrooms. And then my second tart was a peach tart, which, to be honest with you, I really, I, I liked, but it probably was my least favorite meal out of everything. It was probably my least favorite. Um, and then the sommelier brought us wine for our third course. And finally, we both got red wines, which we like better than white. Ryan got a Pinot Noir, and Natalie got um, something called, from J. Laura Vineyards. It's called Wildflowers. And they're both our favorite wines for the night. Um, Ryan's was especially good, and Natalie just loved hers. I love mine because it was just so smooth for a red wine. It was just wonderful. Um, and then the sous chef brought our third course. Um, he basically put our plates in front of us and told us that he was not going to tell us what we were eating until we were done eating it. So immediately we were skeptical. But, you know, knowing that the food is already good and considering we already had three glasses of wine in us and going down a fourth, we were pretty good about eating it. Um, Ryan took a bite of his and said immediately, it's duck. Um, I tasted his and I agreed, absolutely, it's duck. Um, then I tasted mine and I thought, oh, yeah, this is veal. This is good. So I gave him a bite of it, and he agreed, oh, yeah, that's definitely veal. So we ate everything, not knowing what we were eating. Well, after we were done, the sous chef came over and asked us, you know, well, how'd you like your food? And we said, oh, great. He said, well, what'd you think you had? And Ryan said duck, and he said, that's correct. Very good. You've got a good palate. And he said, how about you? And I said, oh, I had veal. I'm sure of it. And he said, mm, not quite. Actually, you just ate rabbit meatloaf. And me, I've never eaten rabbit in my life. And all I could think was, oh, my gosh, I just ate little bunny foo-foo, and I loved it. <laughs> um, in fact, we have all kinds of little bunnies all around our neighborhood. And I looked at my husband, and I said, you know what? We might need to set up some rabbit traps when we get home. I know that's terrible to say, but they were so good. Well, after that, we um, were brought some more wine. Um, this time we had some more red wine. Ryan had a Lassiter Meritage from Alexander Valley, and I had a Duckhorn Merlot from Napa. Um, and then we were brought our main course. Ryan had prime rib New York steak, and I got lamb chops with orange thyme. We were especially surprised considering that I had basically said I was a picky eater, um, and Ryan said, bring on whatever you know you want. Uh, so we were surprised that he got the, the steak and... He had gotten the, the duck when I got the rabbit meatloaf and the lamb chops, chops, but they were really good, um, especially the lamb chops. Um, I know that Ryan stole some of mine. He really enjoyed it. <laughs> and then um, they brought out more wine for dessert. They brought us both the same. Um, it's called a Magical Bruschetto. Um, and then they brought us out our dessert. Ryan had raspberry mile high cheesecake pie, which he absolutely loved, which is Interesting for him because he doesn't normally like cheesecake, but he ate every bit of it. And for me, they brought me a chocolate truffle cake because I love chocolates. And surprisingly enough, the meal was so good that it honestly, the dessert really paled in comparison. It really was not as good for me. Um, but we ate it all. And um, Ryan finished his last glass of wine, but I just couldn't. I had had too much. And I'm telling you, I'm a lightweight. So for me to drink in as much as I did was quite amazing um then they gave us a box of chocolates from napa rose and um while we we're eating our our dessert we had a long conversation with the sommelier about our hometown reno and wine from reno about ferrari carano because carano is actually from reno he has a 
casino here. So we talked about that, and then we took pictures with the executive chef and the sommelier. And after that, we had asked um, the sommelier if we could have a list of the wines. And not only did he bring us out a list of the wines, he brought us out a handwritten list of everything that we had eaten for the night. So it was just wonderful. Um, and I have to say, luckily, we stayed at the Grand Californian because uh, when we originally did the wine pairing, I thought that the wine would be really small little samples, but I was wrong. They are full glasses of wine. So if you're not staying at Grand California, I would definitely recommend getting a taxi or walking because it's a lot of wine. Um, so we had a wonderful time. Um, Ryan and I both afterwards said it was absolutely worth it, even though the cost after a tax and tip was probably around $380. We absolutely loved it, and we both agreed to this day that it was the best meal we've ever had. And I hate to say it, but, you know, every time we go back to Disneyland, we're going to have to go to Napa Rose, even if we have to eat all of our, the rest of our meals in our um, hotel room, if we have to go to a grocery store. We will do it because we really loved it that much. So, anyway, um, hope that everybody can um, have fun with this um, review and um, hopefully you all get a chance to go to Napa Rose. And thank you guys so much for the podcast. We enjoy it every week. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, Natalie. Although I have to say you were throwing me off there, referring to yourself in the third person every now and again. Natalie had. So I'm not sure maybe a little schizophrenia going on there, dear, but I'm joking with you. That was very sweet. <clears throat> and I'm glad you enjoyed the uh, the, re- uh, the restaurant. Um, as I've mentioned a couple times, the last couple of experiences Walter and I had at Napa Rose weren't that great. So, but it is something we have to go back and do again because that was a few years ago. And this sounds like a really nice, nice experience, minus the wine pairing for me. And Walter's not a big wine drinker either. So, uh, but I thank you very much for calling that in and giving us that review and for helping me out here on the sh- in a week where I have to do a a show on my own. So, you get to pick a number. Uh, we'll have. Uh, Julie, give you a send you an email and get your information, and you get to pick a number from the prize matron. So thank you for that. All right, and finally this week, Dave Parfit, our senior correspondent, had a chance to talk with Jeff Sherman and Greg Sherman, who are the sons of Robert and Richard Sherman. And apparently, uh, Jeff Sherman, who is Robert's son, had stumbled across Dave's blog and interview with Richard Sherman from a few months back and uh, had some things he wanted to he wanted to talk about and they were also able to get Richard's son Greg on the call as well so uh, here is Dave Parfit's interview with Jeff Sherman and Greg Sherman Greetings everyone this is David Parfit senior correspondent for the Diz Unplugged we've previously had on our show Disney legend and composer Richard Sherman who, along with his brother Robert Sherman, made up the prolific Academy Award-winning songwriting team who created musical film scores for Mary Poppins, The Jungle Book, and Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, to name a few. The Sherman brothers were also responsible for classic Disney theme park attraction music, including It's a Small World, There's a Great Big Beautiful Tomorrow, The Tiki 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 Room, and Winnie the Pooh. In spring 2009, a documentary titled The Boys, The Sherman Brothers Story premiered. The film gave an intimate portrait of the true lives of the songwriting pair. While the Shermans worked closely together to create some of the happiest and most cherished songs in the American canon, 
the brothers' personal lives could not have been farther apart. The Boys has just been released on DVD, and today I'm joined by the filmmakers Greg Sherman and Jeff Sherman to talk about the project. Greg and Jeff, thank you very much for taking the time to join us today. It's our pleasure. Our pleasure. <laughs> we plan to say that at the same time. <laughs> First of all, I want to congratulate you on your film. This is an incredibly powerful and moving picture that at times almost feels like a family therapy session. <laughs> for those in our audience that don't know, Greg Sherman is an Emmy Award-winning producer and feature film writer who also is the son of Richard Sherman. Jeff Sherman is also a writer, producer, director, and composer for film and television, and the son of Robert Sherman. Greg, could you tell us how you decided to make this film, and why you decided to make it with your cousin Jeff? It's a very good question. Jeff and I had, uh, throughout our entire childhood and into our adult life, really, though we lived in childhood homes seven blocks apart, didn't know each other at all, and there was an event the opening of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang in London in 2002, where we were both, as often was the case, seated on opposite sides of the theater with our respective dads and family. And that night, given that we had been at events our whole lives, that night, for some reason, we decided to strike up a conversation afterwards and said, what, what really happened? How did this happen that our dads wrote foremost entertainment, family music, but we ourselves couldn't get our families together? And we decided to investigate further, and that's how it began. Jeff, one of the reasons I wanted to speak with you in particular is because we've been able to have Richard Sherman on the show and heard his perspective on composing for Walt Disney, working on Mary Poppins, etc. However, partly because your father now lives in London, we have not heard Robert Sherman's perspective as much. How would you describe their partnership? Well, it's interesting. They're two very different people as we show in the film, in The Boys. And Dick grew up wanting to be a, comp- a composer and uh, music, and my father was more of a writer. He wrote plays and short stories and poems and such. And after he got back from World War II, my father wanted to say some things to the world to make it a better place. And when our grandfather, Al Sherman, who was a composer, teamed them up, suddenly these two guys, they were two halves of a whole. And he saw that, he put them together, and there was a magic between them that neither one of them could have done alone. They were able to create songs about charity and love and togetherness and families and hope and optimism. And they both had that feeling, but this way, together, this magical combination, they were able to make these timeless songs and get these messages out. One of the things I remember in the film, and and you were mentioning it just now, too, was the line that people were always pushing Richard and Robert Sherman together first their father your grandfather you mentioned challenged them to write a song together then walt disney held them together and finally their longtime manager you mentioned that you hoped the process of making this film would help to make them closer do you think you accomplished that well you know i I think that in some ways they understand each other a lot better because they were you know our, our tagline for a long time was brothers partners strangers they lived very separate lives and didn't communicate about a lot of their personal feelings and experience. And I think now they understand that. Did it actually bring them closer together? I can't say it did. I think that they're kind of set in their ways. But I think they do, deep down, Greg and I did find is they really do love each other. That came out so much from both sides and respect each other as as creative people and as, as men. But they just had different wants and needs. And ultimately, you know, that kind of drove them apart. It's a generational thing, too, that we've discovered that 
people that are you know in their 60s or 70s and are from a, that generation they don't really want to rehash things that happened in their life and get to the bottom of it and have some sort of epiphany and resolution they're just kind of happier to let things live the way they were and move on with their lives mm -hmm. and we didn't think that because we were of a different generation where you work through your problems and you try and get to the bottom of it and find a better place so we boldly attempted to do that but you know as important to us as trying to get our dads to build a bridge towards each other was to connect their legacy to their body of work and have people know it's a Sherman Brothers song mm -hmm. and for so long nobody really knew who they were and this way too when you get to know who they are and you get to see what they're thinking and, and what their lives were about I think you take a different look at these songs that you know so well and you start really listening to them what they're saying and I think the, uh, the appreciation, hopefully, for the songs and for their legacy will be better appreciated now. One of the things you said is being a generational thing. One of the things that came across in the film, too, was that although Richard and Robert were only, correct me if I'm wrong, but they were only two years apart. That is correct. Yeah, two and a half years, yeah. It seemed like they were almost of a different generation. I mean, Robert had gone off to World War II, and it seemed like that really was a big influence on him. I mean, I think you can pretty much stop at World War II as to where their differences emerged. My dad, who didn't see action in, in wartime and didn't have those experiences and didn't have the, the, the lowest of the lowest feeling of life, only knew one sort of set of things, and that kept him in a totally little bubble world, whereas Bob got to see the worst of humanity, and he was in a different realm from my dad from that point forward. That's about what I was going to say. <laughs> I mean, it's just, you know, when, when you have seen the, the darkness of, of humanity, it's going to change you. I mean, we see it with people coming home today from war. He happened to be a poet who was able to express it in words, my father, Bob Sherman. And if he'd just been a poet or he'd just been a playwright or just been something, I don't think his, and I think this is what he knows too, is that his message would never have been as, as, as widely known and loved and appreciated because, you know, Richard's such a fantastic composer that the melodies come into your head and they can't leave and the thoughts come in with it. And, you know, they did, you know, part of their process, you asked about the process before, sat in the room with them a couple of times and they've written songs and they both contribute to both the music and the lyrics. I mean, I, I would say probably Bob is primarily the lyricist and Dick is primarily the composer, but they do cross over and, and help each other with those things. So it really is a as somebody said in our, uh, our interviews, it's like a chemical change once they get in a room together. And they knew that magic, and it's what kept them together for 50 years. You really did start to learn what a Sherman Brothers song was. Oftentimes we'd hear them in isolation, hear It's a Small World or something from Mary Poppins. But I really liked how you were presenting the music together in a package, and it really had its own signature to it. Mm -hmm. well, that was one of the joys of doing the investigative work that we did with this is that I think we all, or at least I definitely took what my dad had done for granted my whole life. And in looking through the canon of work of their unbelievable output, it's amazing what went into a Sherman Brothers song and how very different those songs were, but their approach to it was always similar. It was the idea first mm -hmm. and symbolable and singable and accessible and what we got to do in the documentary, which was so exciting for us, was highlight a little bit of that creative process, show how they approached their songs and what made the songs resonate lyrically and musically. 
in the DVD extras, we even devoted a whole section to the process and how it works. And we, we talked to other composers, too. What the Sherman Brothers really did great was people look at them and they think they are just maybe, you know, if you just in the hearing of Small World or, or Spoonful of Sugar, you think it's sort of a simple song. But really, when you get down to it, they're saying a lot. And it's honest. And it's from the heart. And that's why we figure that these things have gone on generation after generation and loved all over the world in, in every language because these are universal feelings. These aren't of the time. These aren't just a little silly a kiddie song. These are really well-thought-out, well-crafted songs by two, uh, you know, we think geniuses that, that were able to combine their talents and make something better than either part would have done on his own. We're a little biased, but... What yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, too, though, is that if they were so simple, they wouldn't last as long. They would have faded out. They would have come in and That's out right. of your mindset very quickly. But but they get in there, and they and they stay. It's, they form a seed. They resonate. Yes, exactly. It's interesting. And, and, and Birds, there's a lyric. She says, Julie Andrews sings, Though her words are simple and few, listen, listen, she's calling to you. And in a way, that's kind of what their songs were like. They're simple, they're few, but they're the right words, and they're the ones that resonate in your heart. And the same with the music, the notes that hit your heart and stay there. And what's so rewarding for Jeff and me is that on the various screenings we've been to and the festivals where we've played, audiences viscerally react to feeling and hearing that music the way they did when either they were children or they just had children, or it just brings them back to a happier, healthier place in their life, and it, it has a real visceral effect. And how rewarding is that for us to be able to see people appreciate it in that way? I'm sure. I'm sure. From a filmmaking point of view, how difficult was it to make a documentary where your subjects aren't speaking to each other? And then they also happen to be your fathers, too. You know, they, they do speak to each other, as, as my dad says, never softly. <laughs> okay. Um, they, uh, you know, they do, it's not like they're, there's a big stone wall up there. They do communicate, they, you know, they speak on birthdays and things like that. And it's just kind of part and parcel of my father being in London now. But aside from that, there were difficulties in making the film in that, you know, we, we Greg and I agreed at the beginning of the, making this film that there was not a bad guy in the story because we honestly don't feel there is one. We see we both see each point of view of each of each father, and it's just it was just that strange, weird. I, you know, I, I say in the film it's like a Greek tragedy in a way, because they're such different men, but those differences combine and cause this this change. They come at this, uh, an idea from slightly different points of view, and that makes that debate that conversation makes the the song rise to a higher level. It's not a simple story necessarily it's well thought out well worked out and comes from two different points of views but also as filmmakers we really had to make uh, so many decisions on so many levels so many times as to how to best communicate that story what best serves it photographically or cinematically whose soundbite is the best what music should be underneath if any at all there were so many decisions that we had to make to be able to whittle down the mountain of music and interviews and footage and and uh, all that we had to be able to best tell that story. Mm-hmm. So it was a huge challenge for us. Yeah, what we did when we started was we started with interviews off camera with our two dads just to kind of get the story in our head. We originally were going to do it as a scripted biopic or a Broadway play. 
And so we got their stories, their perspectives. You know, we called my dad for hours and hours, and we we took Dick out for Chinese food because he loves that, and we'd sit and talk. And we got that whole perspective. Then we made like a chronology of their life, the important part, you know, points of their life according to them, really. And then we went and we took all the songs that they'd written. I mean, there's over a thousand songs from 1950 to today, and we put them side by side with what was going on when they were written across from the chronology. And it suddenly evolved into this sort of Da Vinci Code for us, hmm. where we went, oh, they were, you know, that song's in that movie, and everybody's heard it, everybody associates it with that movie, but they're writing about their parents dying, or, or growing old, or start teaming up, let's get together, the first real big song that they wrote at Disney, it's about two siblings who didn't really know each other, but they get together in a song, and they get together and, and, and make a team to, to do something better than they could do alone. Ironically, the last song they ever worked on together, and I, you can't script this, was called Teamwork. And they wrote it for Chitty Chitty Bang Bang, the stage version, hmm. in 2004. So it really did come full circle, and they still appreciated what a team could do together, and that's what the song is about. And all through their careers, I mean, all through it, it really was fascinating to kind of go back. And not only did it you know, amaze us that they put so much of their lives and their personal experience into these songs, but it was, it's just amazing because, especially, I, I don't know how Greg was growing up with his dad. My dad was so humble. He'd come home. I, I knew he was a songwriter. And I'd go to see the movies. I'd go to the recording sessions. But he wasn't a Hollywood guy. And he didn't, he didn't advertise himself, which was always, I guess, part of the problem that people didn't relate the Sherman Brothers to their work. Because they didn't really go out and tell, you know, make a big deal of it. But, you know, when you go into it, and now Greg and I are both in this business, and you see them, as he said, the mountain of work that they did just for so many things, so many outlets. And it's, it was really amazing to, and, and made us, you know, they're our heroes anyway, but it made us appreciate them even more as artists and uh, contributors to the zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. For people that aren't necessarily Disney fans, do you think there's a larger message to the boys that people can relate to? We hope so. In fact, we didn't make this film for Disney fans. We know that Disney fans would appreciate it, but we made this about anybody that's been in a partnership, anybody that's had a sibling rivalry, anybody that's interested in the history of 20th century music, because, of course, our grandfather, before our dad and uncle, wrote songs for pop culture, and there's a wealth of information about writing songs for film and television, and I think there's a, a, a 20th century is covered throughout that, well beyond the Disney years, which was a very fruitful, but not the only period of, of songwriting that happened in the Sherman family's existence. So yeah, we think there's stuff for everybody in there. And I think the other thing is, you know, it's a very universal story. You know, it's not unusual for brothers to fight, especially brothers in business together or siblings in business together. But to be able to do it for so many years, 50 years, through all these projects, through all these theme park songs and all this stuff and make, create all that and stay together despite their differences, that's the, the miracle that we really wanted to show. That, that, what, what, that was the mystery for us. What if, they, if it was so contentious at times and it was so difficult for them, what was that magic that happened when the door closed and the piano started and my dad started writing on a pad with you know, his words? What was that that drove them? And it, it was, I, I really feel they both found in each other the perfect partner, the perfect you know, other half of what they wanted to do. And there's another benefit we get too, which is invariably when we uh, show it publicly, someone or more than one person will come up at the end of the screening and say, 
that's just like me and my sister, and I'm going to call her. Now that I've seen this film, I'm going to reach out to that person that I haven't talked to, that I've been estranged from, because life's not worth like holding a grudge over something silly, and I'm going to go reach out to that person. So there's been a really lovely healing effect occasionally as well, which is a great extra bonus. And it's wonderful that it's coming out now, because, you know, for the holidays and all that, what people are doing is they're showing it, like a bunch of people, my friends and, and people that I didn't even know, uh, watched it in Thanksgiving, and they said, well, I was sitting there with my brother that I don't talk to, and afterward we started talking. <laughs> so I think there is really, as Greg said, there's a great healing, a great message there that don't let, don't let these things get in the way of your family. I think that's a great point to end on, Jeff, and I really want to thank you both for reaching out to each other and trying to make that connection and trying to understand what the source of the difference was between your fathers and sharing this story with us, with the world. Greg Sherman and Jeff Sherman, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you, David. It's our pleasure. This has been David Parfit, Senior Correspondent for The Diz Unplugged, speaking with Greg and Jeff Sherman, filmmakers for The Boys, The Sherman Brothers' Stories, about the lives of Disney songwriting legends and their fathers, Richard and Robert Sherman. The Boys is now available on DVD, and thanks for listening. All right, well, thank you very much for that, Dave. Thanks also to Jeff and Greg Sherman for taking the time to talk to us. Um, I realize this has been an odd show. I realize it's not nearly as good when it's just me. Um, I, we are, As Kevin has put it in the past, uh, we are definitely made better when we are together. And uh, I certainly feel that sitting here tonight by myself. Uh, it's just not the same without these guys. But as I said, I didn't want to go. I didn't want to start the new year by missing a show. We missed a lot of them last year. Uh, it was unavoidable, but I did not want to start the year off like this. So I figured, at the very least, put something up uh, for for you folks to listen to. Gave you a couple of rants there to keep you happy. Those of you who like them, those of you who don't. Well, what can I do? Um, I want to thank uh, Natalie for her review of the Napa Rose Chef's Table experience and. Uh, that is going to do it for us this week. We will be back with you again, all of us, next week with another episode of The Diz Unplugged. Have a happy new year, everybody. And remember, stay out of the damn lakes.